tangent, to break off suddenly from a line or train of thought and pursue another course. Webster's. Welcome to Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. My name is Michael Bradley, and with me is... <laughs> Sorry, I was muted. Sean Engel. <laughs> we, are, Sorry, I was... we are starting off strong here. Yeah, well, uh, I needed my coffee, so I didn't want to hear you having... <clears throat> didn't want everyone to have to hear me slucking down that stuff. Sorry about that. Uh, if you are somebody who listens to a lot of podcasts, then you're probably aware that podcasters occasionally will go on tangents and this is a show that's going to be full of tangents because on this show sean and i are going to be looking at all the books involved in dc comics's tangent universe events now the tangent universe is a concept that started in 1997 and it was an idea originally conceived by dan jurgens who uh, if i understand correctly came up with the concept and put together a, a sort of bible for the universe And then they decided on nine different titles and got together a bunch of different creators um, who really are kind of a a who's who of the comics of that time and released nine separate one-shots. And uh, to explain a little more about what the tangent concept is, I'm going to read a short passage from the back matter that's included in in all of the first wave issues. Uh, And it has the definition, tangent break off suddenly from a line or train of thought and pursue another course. That was Dan Jurgens' inspiration for the book you're holding. Or the book that I'm holding, I guess. As Julie Schwartz had done 30 plus years ago in Showcase Number 4, which introduced the world to a new Flash, whose only connection to the previous incarnation was that the new guy was a comic book fan of the other speedster, Dan proposed to give creators the freedom to imagine new versions of our characters free from the shackles of all previous continuity with one condition. They had to use an existing DC name. He came up with nine books, providing the initial concept. And from here, the ideas evolved to create Tangent Comics. It's not like Elseworlds, where you have familiar characters like Bruce Wayne's Batman, but in a a different time and setting. No, the goal here was to create characters and an entire world from scratch. So, the books pretty much all stand alone, but if you read them all together, you get a you you get a much larger storyline and a view of the much wider world that they created. 
Yeah, as we go through the books, you'll definitely see that there are things seeded in each individual book that build and carry on throughout the rest of the series. You can specifically read each individual book on its own and get a good story out of each one of them. But I, as I've come to come to read through some of these books, once you read them together, it, it brings forth a sort of overarching universe that's really very interesting. And a lot of people have said that this is kind of akin to what Alan Moore did for Watchmen and taking uh, existing heroes and putting them in different uh, sort of universe. So I think we'll get into that later in the later in the stories and all along the uh, lines of this podcast and showing how these these episodes or these comics stand alone on their own, but are also a part of a much greater thing. Mm-hmm. I've also, as far as format goes, I've also seen it compared to Grant Morrison's Seven Soldiers. Mm-hmm. Event that he put together because there he had seven different miniseries that that all stood alone. But if you read them all, you got a much larger storyline. Yeah, I can see that as well. So, do you want to tell them kind of how this show came about and why we've decided to look at these? Well, basically, it came out from me being kind of uh, clueless, which is pretty much the way things. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Well, well, just not really understanding that. Uh, while I was doing one of my uh, episodes of Just One of the Guys, I came across an ad for the Tangent Comics promotion, and looking at it, it had an image of the character of Power Girl on there, uh, who who to me looked very anime. It had a picture of the Green Lantern, who's a female who kind of seemed sort of like a vertigo character so i took it as being sort of just a a wacky type of tryout type book and not really relating all that much to the dc universe michael wrote in and told me no this is really a uh, very heavy storyline uh driven series that uh, brought together a lot of great comic talent uh we'll see here in the first issue we've got dan jurgens drawing and writing it later on people like mark miller um we have john ostrander we've got oh uh, just a ton of big name people uh from the 90s coming on to do these books and i basically said well you know why don't we do a little crossover between our two shows, Superman and Batman, and just one of the guys. And you can come on on my show and cover the Green Lantern comics, and I'll come on on your show, and we can cover the Superman and Batman comics. Then eventually you pointed out uh, an auction on eBay where someone was uh, selling all of the Tangent books from both the first series and the second series in one lot, and I bid on it, got the comics, and decided... Well, you know, I've got all of these. Why don't we just go throughout the entire run? And that's what we're going to be doing. So much like all podcasting projects, it just sort of snowballed from an mm-hmm. innocent little idea. Oh, yeah. Well, and sometimes the, sometimes that's, the, that's a great way that things work out. You know, this, is, this, again, is something that I really enjoy about doing podcasts is that I'm getting to – take a look at things that I probably wouldn't have taken a look at before and uh, expand my comic book knowledge into realms that I, I wouldn't have gone into. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that, first of all, you uh, mentioned this to me and brought this up, and now that we're going to be taking a look at this, because so far I've been nothing but impressed with these books. So I'm looking forward to all of this. Yeah. And how far into it have you read so far? So far, I've only, I, I did another show... That was uh, where I took a look at a comics property where I had no 
knowledge of it uh, before of that. And that one was the uh, the comic US one. If <laughs> now now granted, uh, I would say what you will about US one. Yes, it's not it's not a great property, but it was mildly fun, and I hadn't taken a look at it. But uh, with that, and along with this, I had only read. Uh, you know, when I was reading the comics, I would only read up to what I was supposed to cover and then maybe read the next issue so I'd get an okay. idea of what was supposed to be going on. So right now, currently in reading order, I am up to the first issue of The Flash. So okay. I've read I've read uh, The Atom, The Metal Men, uh, what came after that? The Flash and what came after that? I'm trying to remember. Green Lantern, the first Green Lantern. So I've read those four so far. And you can tell that there's something building on. There's there's little seeds being laid in each book that eventually build and build on this, and uh, it's getting really interesting. I, so far, I have not been disappointed with anything in the book so far. Great. Yeah, and I bought these when they came out. Um, I think there was one or two that I did not get right away because my shop that was back when I actually had a comic shop instead of ordering online, but my, my shop didn't have them, but in, I think it was the second Green Lantern issue that I didn't actually end up getting until a couple years later. Mm. Uh, but I read them all when they came out, and I've read a couple of them since, but there are a couple of these that I have absolutely no memory of, like Sea Devils, which we'll be covering uh, in a couple months. I have absolutely no memory of that comic, other than it was written by Kurt Busiek, so... You know, I'm I'm coming into these having read them, but I'm also kind of coming into them a little bit fresh too in in certain places. But well, well, that'll be good because you know you'll have. I think we'll both. It'll be kind of interesting for us to both have that sort of fresh perspective on them. And given you know our collective comic book knowledge, I think it'll give us a, a good idea of what's going on. But it'll give us an idea to look at it without any. You know, sort of taint of you know what what we imagine of it before. Baggage. So yeah, any baggage on it. So I think that'll work out pretty well for the show. So you ready to get into the first? Oh, before we do that, the, the order we're going to be covering this, we're going to cover one issue per episode, and uh, the order we're going to be covering them in is the same order that they are collected in the trade paperbacks. Mm-hmm. So if you have the trade paperbacks, you'll be able to go right through those. Or if you have the issues, it'll be easy enough to just pull. You know one issue at a time but mm-hmm. but uh yeah it's uh i'm glad you gave gave me this reading order and it it definitely does build on each other there's see like i said many times before there are seeds laid in this first issue of the atom that really uh, get fleshed out in later issues so this is the this is i'm really looking forward to see how all this works together and it's interesting not to derail us again but it's interesting that the atom is the first book, considering the atom is sort of the building block of everything. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty much the he's he's essentially the Superman of this universe. Mm-hmm. So it's and it's kind of I well I don't know if it's ironic, but it's kind of, it's a nice coincidence that the Superman of this universe is drawn by a person who's really acquainted or really associated with the Superman comics from this time, Dan Jurgen. So. But uh, if you're ready, I or do you want to do you want to take a break, or do you want to go ahead and jump right into uh, this? Let's just go ahead and jump into it. All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and we'll start out. The first comic is the Atom Number One. I guess technically it would be, only be Number One. I don't think 
they did a uh, did they do a second one in the second wave or was no. that a different name? No. So, so all, we'll just all the books are number, are number ones. Even like there's two flash issues, but they're both titled different, so they're both number ones. All right. Well, uh, again, this one was cover dated of December 1997, and it was released on October 1st of 1997. I believe all of these were released on the same day, just kind of dumped at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was a fifth week event for those of you who know what those are. That makes sense. Oh yeah, that that completely makes sense. Well, that's a good idea for this fifth week event. Um, the cover price for this one was two ninety five US and four twenty five Canada. The title of it was "The Truth" or just "Truth." The writer and penciler, like I said, was Dan Jurgens. The inker was Paul Ryan. Colors were by. Pat Garahay. Separations were by Digital Chameleon. The letterer was Dave Lampier. Assistant editor was Frank Berrios. The associate editor was Dana Curtin. Editor was Eddie Braganza. And the tangent to comics concept was based on concepts by Dan Jurgens. The story opens to the narration of President Schwartz, and let's get all the giggling about his name out of the way at the beginning, because Spaceballs was over a decade ago. Being briefed on the arrival of the third generation of the superhero known as the Atom. The nuclear Superman uses his powers to increase his molecular density, then crashes in on the secret water tower hideout of the Fatal Five, the group of villains who murdered his father. Ice and Deathstroke attempt to stop the Atom, but the hero shrugs off their attacks and moves to the person he was truly after, the Shadow Thief. But Ice freezes the Atom to the floor, allowing the vampiric Count Viper to grab Atom from behind and attempt to sink his teeth into his neck. Swiftly, the Atom grabs the Count and uses his ability to change molecular density once more, only this time to change Viper's necrotic flesh into tapioca pudding. Breaking free of the icy shackles, the Atom once again heads towards the Shadow Thief, but before he can apprehend him, the Thief teleports away but not before imparting a cryptic message of how his grandfather was almost responsible for the destruction of the whole planet. We cut to the White House, where a concerned President Schwartz is attempting to run some spin on the arrival of this new paranormal, while at the same time, a shadowy agency called Nightwing monitors the President's every action. Back at the Water Tower, the Atom is being mobbed by a crowd of onlookers and one smelly hippie asking why he was here. Concerned with his privacy, the Atom takes off, destroying the microcam that the President was using to monitor him. This prompts the President to investigate the case files on the original Atom, a story that begins at the end of World War II. Back then, the United States government was experimenting on the effects of radiation on human beings, with most of the results being that people died. But one man didn't, Arthur Harrison Thompson. He kept absorbing the radiation and using it to mutate his body into a different form of human. The military kept him isolated at a secret base in hopes that they could learn from his mutation to help people survive in case of a nuclear war. But when the Cuban Missile Crisis arose, the government sent a Tom, get it, Arthur Thomas, Arthur Thompson, Atom, yeah, uh, you get it, to disable all the warheads in Cuba. Using the radiation his body had stored, Arthur was able to disperse that energy, allowing him to fly. But before he could reach the communist isle, Castro had launched all his nukes and destroyed Florida and most of the southeast coast of the United States. This prompted a full retaliation, 
but Arthur was able to use his mutated brain to calculate the trajectory of all the missiles and his mutant energies to bring them down, both Soviet and American. This led to the Atom taking on a superheroic persona and coming out to the public, despite his freakish looks. It also led to a new era of superheroes, but the Atom wanted little part of it as he retreated to a base on the moon. Eventually, his son took on his father's mantle and became even a more public hero, but this led to the tragedy as the Fatal Five were able to murder him, but not before he too was able to father a son. Ending the case file playback, Schwartz wonders just what the Shadow Thief was cryptically cryptically relating to the third generation Adam, while the mysterious Nightwing person looks on at his Circuit City wall of flat screens. Meanwhile, the Adam is ruminating on his sucky day. While lost in thought over his unique life, he is approached by a younger girl who asks him to autograph her issue of World's Finest. The Adam makes some commentary on digital comics and how much of a grump his grandfather is, but he signs the comic regardless, asking the girl to keep his statement secret. The Adam flies off, and while still pondering the statement by the Shadow Thief, he decides to go straight to the one source who might be actually able to clear all of this up. Minutes later, Adam lands on the deck of an unmarked boat that is the home of his grandfather, the original Adam, and tells him to spill the beans about this mysterious truth the Shadow Thief was talking about. And, speaking of the Shadow Thief, he's currently entering his swampy lair and checking his Gmail account, which shows him the exact location of the two generations of the Adam. Back on the boat, the Adams are arguing over their roles as heroes when they see two nuclear missiles heading their way which in turn blow up the boat real good. It just so happens that the Shadow Thief used the teleporter technology he stole to jump into a missile silo and launch the nukes at the heroes. But his plan of killing them off proved fruitless as the Photonic family confront the Shadow Thief at the military base. The Elder Adam tries to zap the Thief, but the Younger stops the bolt and allows the Shadow Thief to monologue about what actually happened on that fateful day. You see, instead of the government sanctioning Arthur to take out the Cuban nukes, he went off on a rant saying that he should intervene, killed one of his military handlers, and flew off to stop the Cuban Missile Crisis on his own, vo- on his own volition. However, the Cubans mistook Arthur for a nuclear launch and unloaded their warheads on the United States, forcing America to do the same on Cuba. Arthur couldn't stop the first missiles, but he was able to stop everything else, leaving only the destruction of Cuba and Florida as the casualties of the Third World War. Ending the story, the Shadow Thief reveals that he was the son of the man that Arthur murdered, thus justifying the murder of the second Adam. Is this all making sense? This is pretty dense so far. Anyhow, the third Adam takes the Shadow Thief to jail in hopes that the truth will finally be revealed by his grandfather which it is as Arthur Thompson testifies before Congress about his role in the Cuban Missile Crisis. With the story wrapped up, the young Adam Thompson takes up residence in New Atlantis, while the sinister Nightwing organization schemes on. And like I said, this is a pretty dense book, but man, is it a good read. And a, a an incredible art. I mean, but you expect incredible art by Dan Jurgens. Yeah. And I love that it perfectly sets up the world. I mean, it gives us a full story, but still leaves us wanting more. And, and it, it opens up a lot of avenues for storytelling, some of which will be going down in issues ahead, but some 
I think are still out there and, and could be explored down the road if they ever want to, you know, revisit the concept. Mm-hmm. And, and it wouldn't be difficult for them to do this as sort of, you know, a, you know, a tangent line if they wanted to. If Jurgens did feel and if, you know, current DC would allow him to, this could easily be revisited and not have to mess with any of the new 52, new 52 continuity. So I think that would be – it'd be nice because this is – I think this is an interesting uh, – Mine. This is would be interesting for them to mine for stories. You know, if people aren't really satisfied with what they're getting from the DC universe, they could maybe check into this. So, right. I, why don't we take a quick break and then come back and do the page by page? That sounds like a good idea. I'm okay. good for that. <laughs> wow, I'm really glad I decided to pony up and take my wife to Italy for a birthday. The food, the sights, the atmosphere—it's all just so perfect. Too bad I had to ask if there was a comic book shop located at the Vatican. Uh, Maybe it wasn't the brightest thing to do on her birthday, but granted, I'm certain I've done things way more foolish than that. Good afternoon. Gah! Where did you come from, and who the heck are you? My name is Dufo de Manzo, and where I come from is none of your concern. What is of your concern is that I have an offer to make of you. An offer that you should not refuse. Uh... Okay, what is it? I have listened to your podcasts, and it just so happens that I am in the podcasting business myself. Someday I will ask a favor of you, one that I hope you will repay to me in good faith. When you do so, you will become a part of my family, and your show will prosper along with it. Oh, that sounds great. What do I need to do? You will know when the time is right. Until then... I wish you and your lovely wife the happiest of times in my fair country. Uh, oh, okay, cool. Some time has passed. And that does it for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Thanks everyone for listening, and I'll catch you all next week. Bravo. Bravo. God! How how the hell did you find me in How did you get in my house? Do not worry yourself with such trivial matters. I have seen your work with this podcast, and I have come to accept the favor that is owed to me. Uh, but you never said what you wanted from me. That is true, so let me restate it now. Wait, what? I have started up a brand new podcasting venture entitled Two True Freaks. I am setting them up with their own website, Two True Freaks. Dot com, and I am gathering a podcast such as yours that have gained my favor to become a part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I will do the honor of putting the Just One of the Guys on the Two True Freaks Network, and in return, our debt will be settled. Oh, okay. Hey, wait, what debt? Do you accept my offer? Uh, sure. I mean, does this mean I'll get paid for the show finally? No. Oh. Okay. Well, does it mean I'll get some cannoli? Of course. The DiManzo family originated cannoli. In fact, we are known the world over for our stuffing of creamy fillings in the tubes. Come check out Just One of the Guys every Friday at 2TrueFreaks.com. Why do you think superheroes are so important? 
People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go. Up, up, and away! Atomic batteries, turbines to speed. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatcrypton.com. And we're back. And after that, we are ready to kind of look at our general notes for this issue. Do you want to go ahead and start off, Michael? Sure. Um, my first note is that the event as a whole is dedicated to Julie Schwartz and the, well, the introduction of the Silver Age Flash. So I appreciate that the president is named Schwartz. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's, I didn't really catch on to that. I was thinking more space balls myself. Mm-hmm. But, but regardless, yes, that's a nice homage to Julius Schwartz and what he did with essentially creating the Silver Age of Heroes and giving him as the, uh, the name of the – well, a character that we'll actually see develop further on in the story. So that will be cool. Um, I I enjoyed this. Like I said, my notes are I, – I heard that the – this series was supposed to be compared to Watchmen and taking established heroes and sort of tossing them on their ears. And I think that's a good analogy. Uh, there are a lot of seeds dropped in this first book that are going to be touched on in the rest of the series. And I really think Jurgens does an incredible job with both storytelling and art. This story is really dense. There's a lot of things going on in it. And I've got a lot of notes that I'm ready to cover in this. So yeah. do you want to just go back and forth? or? Uh, yeah, let's just go back and forth. Yeah. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, do you want to start with a cover? Sure. Okay. I think, first of all, I think the Adam has a really great look. Uh, he's not exactly, I mean, facially he doesn't look like Superman. But his body build does kind of uh, give that image and... It's it's just a it's a nice it's a nice piece of art and all the covers had this sort of white background trade dress with the characters standing on it. It really gives it a distinctive feel and uh, lets it stand apart from the current DC comics at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the actual images themselves are really more pinup style images than you know scenes from the comic or whatever, but. Um, this particular one, you know, we see the Adam, and he's basically flying right at the camera, and he, it's a very uh, dynamic shot. Mm-hmm. And I like it. Oh yeah. Um, and I like that the logo is sort of uh, 
retro looking as well. Yeah, that's that's one of the neat things. This is this harkens a lot back to well, obviously starting with the Cuban Missile Crisis, you've got that sort of harkening back to the 1960s type feel. So this does have a sort of silver age feel to the to the logo and I like that as well. Even though you can tell it's set in a very modern era because there's a lot of modern accoutrements that go on. There's a lot of digital technology. They talk about people reading comics or reading papers on essentially iPads. Mm-hmm. So so it's got that sort of retro futuristic feel. So I like that in this comic. Yeah. And that actually transitions well onto the first page because one of my notes for that is that you know you get a cue of the difference in technology right from this first page from the looks of the the uh the vehicles and the information kiosks and stuff. Mhm. And like I said, on the first page, you get the seeding of little hints of things that are going to be touched on in, in the rest of the story. You get uh, the the truck with the name Brand on the side, B-R-A-N-D-E, who I'm we, is kind of touched on in this issue. Uh, he's at least name dropped. Plus, you get a uh, what a like a newspaper or a magazine kiosk with world's finest in it Mm -hmm. and we'll find out a little bit more about world's finest and what uh what its purpose in this uh in this universe is Uh, you know it's not technically a team up between batman and superman but it does has it does have something to do with uh superheroes so that's kind of neat plus i like i like the adam again i'm going to talk about the adam's costume it's it's really nice i'll get to that later though yeah um in the in the back matter that we'll talk about at the end of the episode, it says that Jurgens was reluctant to do this book because you know, he like you said, he is this this universe's equivalent of Superman. But you can see that Jurgens was at least trying to differentiate differentiate the two in the way the Adam holds himself and especially in the way he flies, which mm-hmm. often looks more like um, a laser beam than the fluid flight that Superman does. Yes. Well, uh, the one thing I'll say, and this is moving on to the the second page, and this is commenting on his his uniform. It is very superhero, very Superman inspired with the cape and the tights, but there's no trunks. In fact, it looks more akin to sort of the Eradicator costume, and kind of akin to. Uh, what is it? Uh, the Krypton Man, uh, that storyline that they had before, mm-hmm. uh, before the uh, death of Superman. Uh, it's it's a nice look. It's gray on like uh, about eighty percent on his left side, and then there's a black stripe on the side. Plus, he has uh, the different colored gloves, which is really neat. The blue cape with the sort of I'm trying to see here. It's it's just basically attached to the atom symbol. There, it's just it's a really nice design. Physically, he looks a lot like Superman because that mold is, you know, what you would expect of a, super, of a superhero. But facially, it's completely different. So it, they're they're giving they're giving you a sort of link to the DC universe, but making it distinctly different in some way. And I really enjoy that. Right. I also like this little atomic burst that is kind of around his feet whenever he flies. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's just an artistic flair or if that's actually like a burst of energy that you would actually see if he was real. But well, e- either way, it's a nice it's a nice design. It's a nice way to distinguish him from the way that Superman would fly. Mm-hmm. Um, the moving on to the Fatal Five 
they seem a little bit, I guess, shallow would be a good word, or mm-hmm. maybe like name checks. But I think that has a lot to do with the way they're taken out so quickly here um, over the next couple pages, because they don't, even though they feel shallow, they don't feel like cannon fodder. Mm-hmm. It's one of those points where it feels like they could actually be established characters with backstories and more you know more more tales fleshing out the world could deal with them more that's a lot oh, of mores but oh definitely i mean the, there's obviously a deathstroke character there's obviously an, an ice which he'd either be you know the jla ice gone bad or perhaps killer frost something like that but uh, they're unique characters in their own right but they aren't really given much of a you know, you know, much of a history or much of this. So, yes, these definitely could be characters that would be easily uh, uh, capable of getting their own little story to sort of add to their characters. Mm-hmm. And it feels like Jurgens took time to design each character as well. Mm-hmm. That you know they they weren't just thrown together in a hurry to to have cannon fodder. No. Um, my next note is on uh, page four where we get to see more of the use of the Adam's power. He he said that at the beginning when he was going in and take down the Fatal Five that he used his uh, power to manipulate molecular density mm-hmm. to strengthen himself so he could withstand the ice's uh, sort of ice spear attacks. And this one, and this is pretty gruesome, he uses the same molecular density powers to basically melt the flesh yeah. off this... Uh, Count Viper character, who's supposed to be, I guess, an undead vampiric type character. It's it's pretty gory. I mean, it's not it's not to the level of what we'd see in modern comics, gory, but it is. It does have that sort of horror aspect vibe that you know, sort of Rick Baker, Incredible Melting Man type feel. So it's it's a nice it's a nice shot, and it shows that this this superhero, you know doesn't really take any crap so i like that yeah yeah over on page five you see um what's his name count count vampire Mm -hmm. or count viper count viper okay um he's laying on the ground like holding his face and that they would definitely do some damage to to someone Mm -hmm. but uh page six i've got i thought it was amusing and a nice little Easter egg or callback that on uh, page six, panel two, the company that's involved in developing the transporter technology is called Roddenberry uh-huh. Ener- Energization, which is obviously a uh, homage to Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek. So that's a nice little seed there. I like that. Yeah, I had a note about that too. And uh, I noted that the president referred to the atom as a paranormal, mm-hmm. not a superhero or a superpowered character or a mutant. To me, paranormal seems a lot colder and maybe even something of a politically correct pejorative. Yeah, well, uh, in the DC universe, they were known pretty much as metahumans. By, uh, so this just may be a way of uh, switching that up. And yeah, it does sound – it does kind of give them a, a, a negative feel, a pejorative term that they seem to be using about it. I mean metahumans does have more of a – positive feel to it so it could be the fact that things have gone wrong with these superpowered people in this universe that have given people cause to be distrustful of them at times right 
we also get our first mention here on page six of Nightwing, which is mm-hmm. a shadowy group that has a major role in the universe as a whole. Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll get to see you know what kind of people are connected to Nightwing and how they're connected to the overall story here later in the book. So that's that's cool as well. Yeah. Um, on the next page, uh, I'm kind of disappointed that uh, dirty, smelly hippies survived in this universe. So, <laughs> unfortunately, the '60s didn't get rid of those in this universe, which is sad. But you know, well, whatever. Yeah. We get a reference that. The Adam, the first Adam, not this Adam, the first Adam, was married to Judy Garland, mm-hmm. which is random. <laughs> well, you know, later on in the book, he'll he'll be attributed to uh, you know basically shaping the landscape of entertainment. Yeah, which is which is kind of you know you would think that if an actual person like Superman, you know, were alive in our universe he'd shape the uh landscape of entertainment as well so it's not unheard of but yeah especially knowing what the atom looked like that he would be want to be married to judy garland or judy garland would want to be married to him is you know kind of interesting yeah and we also get a reference to the sea devils mm-hmm. um with the dirty smelly hippie and i don't <laughs> know if that's a point that's followed up on in the sea devils book or just kind of a, a random comment, so we'll have to keep an eye on that. Definitely. I'd like to give just a couple comments on the next ten pages or so as a whole, and then we'll get more specific. But pretty much all of the next ten pages are flashback exposition. But I think they could nearly stand as like textbook examples of how to do these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Because both the writing and the artwork together make this flow very naturally. And it's done. it's done well, and it's very engaging. They cover a lot of material in these pages, but the pace was just so well done. Um, Jurgens kept the story moving, and again, with both the writing and the art, and kept it from feeling like a big info dump, even though that's what it is. Um, he tells us everything we need to know to get the story, but does it very tightly and concisely, and still without making it feel like a clip show or a highlight reel, which I think, you know, it would have been easy to error either way. Oh yeah, it's it's really engaging, uh, and like I said, the the combination of Jerkins' writing and art just really sells what's going on. And yeah. yes, the, this is a, a giant flashback sequence, and it could have easily been you know really poorly done and just kind of uninteresting. But again, Jerkins sells it, and with both the art and uh, the dialogue, and the fact that the dialogue is all sort of being in these word bullet well not in really in the word but in the sort of text commentary that's being dictated to the president so it's it's really good stuff here yeah and i'm glad he he was able to get to knock it out of the park with these pages because the entire comic could have fallen flat on its face because so much hinges on these on these pages mhm but i also kind of came off wanting more all that said i came off wanting more <laughs> because um not necessarily for this story in particular but these pages introduce so much material that that could be fleshed out elsewhere. Well, and it's one of those things where where you get these one-shot events that much like the amalgam books that could have easily spun off into more ongoing series. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, you and I have discussed prior 
uh, the idea of Iron Lantern and that ending, you know, with the Mandarin Estro, yeah. and how much we would have liked to have seen, you know, uh, uh, the character of Iron Lantern going up against the Mandarin Estro in the next book. But unfortunately, since this was just a one shot, we really couldn't have that happen. But yeah, I agree with you. You know, to see some more of this stuff fleshed out in like an ongoing series or in maybe even just a limited series would have been really nice. Yeah. Uh, so. To get back into like page by page, on page eight, it says that Arthur Thompson's body reacted different to the radiation, but we never find out why, which is unfortunate. And it's less than not finding out that's a disappointment as much as the fact that the question of why never really comes up. Mm-hmm. It's never really said whether it's a mutation, it's whether he's got a you know what would be the uh, equivalent of a of the metagene or whatever so it's just kind of left up to you whether or not he was just capable of withstanding all this and his body was able to do it or whether there was something supernatural or as they reported it early, or reported earlier in the book paranormal about mm-hmm. it so super soldier serum mhm um i have on page 9 i think it's kind of on the nose that arthur thompson you know, gets his name shortened to A dot T H O M or Atom. So I thought that was it wasn't quite on the nose as, you know, having this character who has this name become this hero kind of on the nose like yeah. Victor Von Doom becoming Doctor <laughs> Doom or Edward Nigma becoming the is it Edward or Ed, Edgar? Like becoming the Edward. Bridge. Edward Nickman. Well, it was Edward in the movie. Yeah, so there you go. Becoming the Riddler. I mean, it's just... Or Roy G. Bivolo becoming the Rainbow Raider. Uh, <laughs> you know, I actually just... I was just listening to a uh, episode of Who's Who, and they uh, mentioned the Rainbow Raider and how awesome he was. Hmm. Oh, and by awesome, I mean completely not at all. I kind of liked the abbreviated name. It, I, I thought it made sense in a world where the Atom seems to be the first superhero, or... You know, relating it back to the, the 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 word choice earlier, maybe superheroes in this universe aren't as universally welcomed as mm-hmm. compared to the the standard DC universe. So it it just made sense to me. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying I didn't like it. I just thought it was kind of on the nose. But it it, it works for this story. And you know, it, a person being affected by atomic radiation, having the name or the initials of A Thompson, yeah. and turning into A Tom or Atom, you know, was. Yeah. It worked for me. We also get our first hint here that the history that we're being presented with might not be all it purports to be, as the narration talks about Thompson being a, quote, willing prisoner participant. But in the speech balloons, he says, first you steal my humanity and then you cage me. Swell. Which doesn't exactly seem like a guy that's fully on board with mm-hmm. what's going on. Yeah, there there seems to be a bit of discrepancy between, you know, what's been reported to the president or what's been recorded and what has actually been going on. Page 11, this is it. This is the point where it all changes for this universe. Cuba's gone. Florida's gone. Georgia, the Carolinas, probably most of Missouri and Alabama are decimated. Who knows what happened to the the bodies of water in this area and, and the wide ramifications that would have. It's just chilling to think about that happening. And and what I really like about it, if you can like nuclear decimation, is is that Jurgens didn't get melodramatic about it. And in no. fact it might be a little understated. Well and it, it, 
It does definitely sell it. I mean, anytime you see the mushroom cloud and nuclear blast, it does elicit that sort of fear and that kind of emotion in you. And it is sold well enough on on this page 11 with the Adam, just his wide, you know, pupilless eyes looking at this. And then on the next panel, seeing the explosion and you get that he understands the gravity of the situation and he yeah. understands what's going on. And it's, it, it really sells it. And yeah, this is the point where, you know, things just went wrong. And this is, I'm certain this plays into people who, who actually lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, people who understood what was going on with this, probably have an even deeper reaction to this because chances are something like this could have happened. Yeah. And so this is a nice, this is a nice way to delineate this universe from the current DC universe. I, I, I just really enjoy the storytelling of it. Yeah. Uh, page 12, I guess this is a nitpick, but having all this footage seems really convenient. And Holiday says it was captured by spy planes, but if it's if there are nuclear bombs going off and the Atom only survived because of his abilities, how did this footage not get vaporized? Yeah, well, they, they also mentioned that it was uh, something to do with Captain Boomerang, who I guess in this universe was a member of the, the United States Air Force or something like that. Yeah. So, boomerang spy planes. So, um, chances are he had enhanced abilities of his planes to withstand, uh, you know, EMP pulses or something like that. We could cast it off of that, but yeah, it does kind of defy logic that there would be a plane capable of recording this stuff in the detail that we're seeing here yeah. in this recording. And maybe it's not all actual footage that the president is watching, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, it could just be, you know, uh, him being told and we're seeing the events, you know, as as witnessed by what the Adam would have seen. Um, on this page, I will also mention panel three. We get more seeding of things coming on the books, realizing that the president was a part of the Metal Men, which mm-hmm. is a story that we'll be getting into, I think, in next issue. Next so, episode, right? Yeah, next episode, sorry. Um, I don't have any notes till page fifteen. Uh, you want to go ahead and yeah, pay, well, page thirteen. I just I love the bottom panel. It feels very. I, I don't really know why, but it feels very iconic. And I guess because this is the moment where Arthur Thompson went from being Arthur Thompson freak to the Adam superhero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but and it's it's a great image because he's taking down. You know, he, he says he's taking down all the missiles, and you can see on one side. It's not really depicted whether or not this is a Soviet missile, but you can tell on the on the left hand side of the image that it's a United States mm-hmm. nuclear missile. So, yes, he's decided. No, I'm not going to let nuclear warfare happen at all. I'm flipping ahead because that same panel is used later in the book, but no, you can't tell there if that's supposed to be a Cuban missile or it doesn't matter. But, yeah. but he, basically he's saying, you know, no, I'm not going to let any more nuclear devastation happen. I'm taking out all of these right. reasons. Um, pages 14 to 16, I really like the, the Adams superhero costume. It's the Rocketeer meets the Golden Age Sandman. Mm-hmm. That's a really cool costume with yeah. the sort of uh, double-breasted leather jacket and the 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 face mask which which helps you know to cover his face at the time because you would think a person who looks like the Adam does and we really haven't described him he's got a very sort of 
sort of like a gray alien type look. Mm-hmm. He's he doesn't have any hair. He's pretty much bald, and his eyes are completely pupilless, and they've got a sort of blue bluish haze to them. So he looks very freakish, and I'm certain. You know, initially, if he would have come out, people would have been completely alarmed by his look. So, for him to come out as a hero in this costume with this sort of mask going on, it works. It works perfectly well with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you have for fifteen? Let's see. For fifteen, I had. Um, I, I like that the impact that this superhero had on pop culture. Like I said before, we get uh, iterations of TV shows uh, saying he was on the Dick Van Hero show as appeared as opposed to the Dick Van Dyke show, the superhuman hillbillies, you know, the Beverly hillbillies and the get power show, like the get smart. So I like that. And I I really enjoy the the image here of Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore, all dressed up as superheroes. Yeah. I just think that's kind of fun. But it also works that he was uh, important at not only that, but he was also influential in um, musical groups. There was a group that eventually would have become the Beatles that instead became the Atomics, and we'll get references to them throughout uh, some of the rest of the books as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that stuff, it, it seems a little cheesy, but I do like that it, it very quickly gives us an idea of the impact that Adam had on pop culture. Mm-hmm. And that, and and like I said before, you know, you've got a superhuman being in your universe. Certainly, pop culture is going to try and uh, associate itself in any way that it can to this incredibly popular person. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, at the bottom of page fifteen, we get a reference to a Mar. How do you pronounce this? Marlis Cornier, mm-hmm. who is a socialite that the Adam dated. Just make a mental note of her. Okay. She looks now, uh, I'm hoping this isn't spoiling anything, but she kind of has a look of Carol Ferris. I don't know whether or not that'll seed in anything, but her look does kind of have like that. But, you know, he, he's he's running the gamut of women. He's got a brunette, a blonde, and a redhead that he's dating. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's I assume that was supposed them. to be uh, Judy Garland, Marlis, and then Marilyn Monroe. Makes sense. Although Marilyn Monroe wasn't a redhead. No. Anyway, uh, page 16, we get Easter egg references to Captain Comet, Dr. Midnight, and the Metal Man again, Mm -hmm. all of whom we'll get to uh, more in future issues, starting next episode, in fact. Mm -hmm. And this is all uh, comes from the World's Finest magazine, which which isn't uh, a comic book. It isn't, like I said, dealing with Superman and Batman, but it's an actual sort of... Uh, analog to like Time or People magazine, where it's an entertainment magazine that deals with the events and going ons of superheroes. So that's kind of neat. Yeah, it feels sort of like a Sports Illustrated for the superhero set. I mean, it's that, not it's not a trashy tabloid. No. It's actually covering the goings on of the superhero world, mm-hmm. profiles it's, and stuff. Yeah, it's not it's not like Us magazine. It's not you know right. oh gotcha type things. It's actual uh, you know storytelling and trying to represent these people in a good light rather than you know oh we caught you know the Adam you know sneaking around with so and so. So that's that's good. I also like on this page you know we still get the uh, the lunar missions and man going to the moon, but we also find out that after the Adam sort of disappeared from the public eye he actually built a base on the moon prior to 
uh, prior to us getting up there, which, again, hearkening back to Watchmen mm-hmm. is one of the things that we'd see in that with uh, uh, Dr. Manhattan building his little city on the surface of Mars. Yeah. Yeah, overall, this is an, another place where they could really expand these books. And, and I, I would love to see um, a set of stories with the Atom being a superhero celebrity in the 60s. Oh, yeah, that would be awesome. You know, and uh, even and they don't even go into the character that we're going to get on on the next page, Mm-mm. the uh, second generation Adam. I mean, he's just he just bears kind of a mention and only has this sort of one panel where he we see him flying in in a very it's a very different suit than what we'll see the current Adam in. But he's very much. Uh, He's far more human than the original Adam. Yeah. Uh, he's very – I don't want to say Aryan, but he's got very blonde hair and a very uh, strong jaw and a very good look. But um, you know, it would be something that they could easily you know, delve into to get more information out of or get more stories out of by talking about this version of the Adam. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a testament to Jurgens that we only get basically two panels – of the second Adam, but I want to see more of him. Mm-hmm. Well, and his, it, like I said, his design's really cool. Yeah, the, he, the, he looks, it's very reminiscent of the Bronze Age Captain Marvel. The, yeah. The, the Marvel Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the uniform does kind of look like that. Uh, you know, I also saw a bit of the red-suited angel, mm-hmm. you know, the costume looking a bit like that from yeah. Marvel Nurse, but uh, especially with the, uh, what is it? The open top, uh, full headpiece that he has on that allows his hair to stick out. Right. So, so it's a, it's a good look. But yeah, with these, just he's dispatched by the Fatal Five in these two pages. So you don't get to know much about him aside from the fact that he's the father of the now current Adam. Yeah. Speaking of that, though, there is kind of an inconsistency in the timeline here, though, because there's not enough time for the second and third Adams to have been born and be as old as they are as the book presented to us. Mm-hmm. Assuming this story takes place in 1997. I mean, it's never specifically stated, but that's when it was published. Yeah, that's true. Well, you could, you know, from the technology that some of the people are using with the uh, little spy microcams that, that fly around and uh, report what's going on with the with the superheroes, plus the sort of uh, futuristic z- designs of the vehicles and the fact that People are reading stuff on digital pads, essentially. You could take it that this might be set somewhere in the future, but yeah, since it was published in 79, the if it was supposed to be set in this timeline, it doesn't quite work out that right. this Adam could be this age. So, yeah. Uh, page 18, we find out that the second Adam was married to Barbara Eden. And I've got to say that if I had the opportunity to be married to Barbara Eden, I would definitely uh, jump at that. There you go. Even even nowadays, I've seen Barbara Eden recently, and she's <laughs> still incredibly attractive. So I can't I can't fault the second Adam for going for for her. Just yeah. And she was a, in, in this universe. She was a star of I Dream of Dream Girl. <laughs> oh, that's that's wonderful. But moving on to page 19, I love the scene with the Adam and the little girl. And I think it went a long way to giving some character to the Adam who 
you know, we're, we're 20 pages in, but not much of that has been spent on him because of the, the large flashback. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of neat in the way he's he's got that sort of Superman persona where he's just very sort of aw shucks, I'm glad to yeah. talk to you. And he's very he's very human and willing to 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 deal with uh, this little girl. But he's also different in that he's he, he has a different feel. He has not not necessarily a self-centered type of feel. I mean, he's very altruistic, but he's just got a it's distinguished just enough from the Superman character that you don't think that this is ripping off Superman. Yeah. So I you know again, Jurgens is doing a great job with this this particular character which could easily be considered a Superman ripoff and make he's making it his own thing. Mm-hmm. It's weird though on this page the top panel where he's holding the issue of World's Finest, that's Superman on the cover. Yeah. I mean, the pose is meant to harken back to what we saw on page 16, but the way it's colored, that's Superman, the real, mm-hmm. the, the regular Superman. Yeah, it's red cape, the red trunks, and the blue uniform. Yeah, the, there's no denying that Superman is on there. So, And, and even on the, on the next panel where it's uh, a little further away, you can tell that yeah. Superman is there. So maybe this is an expose on you know, what heroes – you know, maybe a new hero costume issue. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. It's the it's the it's the world's finest swimsuit issue. Maybe. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> <Ugh>. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, <laughs> page twenty, we get a reference to the Joker, and also on the next page, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get a, a panel there where we see on one of the view screens we see the Joker, mm-hmm. and then she also comes up at the end of the book. Yeah, Just and plus. Easter eggs and, for future issues, and plus also on this uh, on this on page twenty we get the introduction of the character of R.J. Brand, mm-hmm. uh, who I'm assuming is going to have uh, more stuff to do uh, throughout this uh, storyline as well. Uh, he mentions that uh, he's baffled about the inability to conquer the disease of AIDS, so it, it's a little seeding of putting in. The idea that AIDS was manufactured in this universe and that they should be able to cure it easily, but they're not having any hope. So this brand character seems to be a sort of scientist, almost Tony Stark type character. So it'll be interesting to see what goes on with him throughout the rest of the story. Yeah, I I assume it's going to come up later as much play as it gets here, but I don't remember what becomes of him, so... Again, you know, this is this is what we'll get for you know reading the book as as it sort of progresses. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. Page twenty one. As all powerful and all knowing as Nightwing has been presented so far, I mean, and we've only had half of an issue, but it seems odd to me that, given what we've seen, that they weren't able to track the first Adam's whereabouts. Mm-hmm. Because they've got you know they've got this giant you know, secluded secret room with all these monitors monitoring very things and various things. You see, you know, the Joker there, you see a person looks like he's been murdered underneath him. You've got uh, military things. looks like you've got another thing with RJ brand. So there's just tons of stuff that they're monitoring here. Right. The fact that they couldn't find out where the Adam was is just uh, pretty suspicious, I guess. But, um, page 22, Jurgens uses this trick several times of showing the atom 
all in shadow with no dialogue to drive home a, a moment. It's repetitive, but it really, really works. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a way of without by putting him in shadow and yeah, like by putting him in shadow and not giving me anything to say, it gives him a moment of quiet introspection where it looks like the atom is you know contemplating whether or not he should say what he's supposed to say next. Yeah. So uh, uh, it's it's good storytelling by Jurgens. Page twenty three. Shadow Thief really gets around. He's in mm-hmm. New York, now he's on Dagobah, and then soon <laughs> in the middle of nowhere on a boat. And- See, I was you know, I was kind of thinking, yeah, the same thing, the Dagobah. You know, I thought him being in a swamp, the first thing that came to mind was the Legion of Doom, and it would have been nice if oh. you know if there would have been a big giant sort of metal skull thing rising yeah. out of the water. That would have been awesome. But yeah. you know, again, him being in a little you Missed know opportunities. You know, Dagobah, Ewok, Tree Hut thing. That's fine. Yeah. Um, page 24. Yeah, just a small... I kind of would have liked to have seen a bit more information about what kind of relationship the first and third Adams have. I mean, they're clearly not meeting for the first time, but how much time have they spent together both before and after the second Adam died? Would have been mm-hmm. nice. Well, and maybe there was, you know, again, this is something that if there were to be a ongoing series about the Atom, that they could uh, approach in that, you know, whether what kind of relationship that they have. Did the death of the second Atom cause a rift between the grandfather and the grandson? Yeah. You know, it's, it's stuff that's only hinted at here, but, you know, could easily be expanded on. Page 27, Shadow Thief drops a line here that he he implies that the Atom might be making himself look the third Atom might be making himself look human, but they don't really go into it. Yeah, I, I kind of skipped over that. Uh, you know, because of, you know, because we never saw them as children. We never saw them as infants. So right. there could be some way, and since he said that he has the uh, ability to manipulate his molecular density, that wouldn't uh, preclude him from being able to manipulate the way his molecules make him look you know to to manipulate you know the way his outer appearance is so you know you might even think that the original adam probably could do that as well and you know uh, maybe that's just something that he forego because he just doesn't feel like doing it so that's interesting yeah yeah but i don't know if, if he could do it though you would think he would have done it back in the 60s yeah when he was trying to right. score tail with all the hot models yeah <laughs> right but anyway, it doesn't really matter for this story. It's just something I would have liked to have seen expanded on. Mm-hmm. You know. um, next thing I have to say about is the the second flashback on 29 to 33. Yep. All right. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say on page 29, uh, panel 4, it's kind of subtle, but when the uh, private called Sergeant Gray, it, it's revealed uh, later in the book that this is the father of the shadow thief who was also called gray throughout the entire book. And you don't get that until the very end. You don't get the reveal that this guy that the original Adam killed was the character that was the father of the shadow thief. So I, I, I like the seating of this here Mm -hmm. and it's really good storytelling. And then, you know, it's, you don't expect this to be happening. And plus you get the idea that the whole thing that the government presented to the president wasn't exactly there. So I I like that there's a conspiracy theory going on throughout this too. That's really cool. Yeah. I didn't pick up on the fact that this was 
the same gray or a relation, you know. Mm-hmm. I just read right over it, I guess. Um, well, and they mention they mention here later that you know he had a you know that uh, he had a wife and a baby boy. So you know, eventually yeah. that turns out that. So that's what's kind of cool. But you get the feeling that a lot of the first Adam's actions were basically started by frustration from being pent up on the base and, and treated like a lab rat all that time. Mm-hmm. And things just got out of control. Uh, I don't get the sense, even from just page thirty to, to skip ahead a little bit, that he intended to kill this guy. And, and no, whether he didn't know his own power or just lost control of himself, it, it isn't clear. But you know, I think he was trying to do the right thing and, and just made a misjudgment. Yeah, well, he was. I'm certain at the time, you know, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, you were seeing all these things happening and building to the fact that there could be nuclear devastation released on the United States. And him being a person that could make a difference in this and not being able to could have been really frustrating him. And they're just things that built and built upon that, leading to the fact that on this page 30 that this private gray pulls a gun on him mm-hmm. and the Adam has to essentially defend himself, but defends himself to a level where he ends up killing the guy. Right. So, yeah, it's it's not justified, but you can understand the rationale behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just yeah he just made a mistake. I think. I mean, mm-hmm. well, it's it's one of those things that they it's you know if you want to use legalese, it would probably be uh, uh, what manslaughter. It's not right. intention. He, he he didn't intend on doing this. Right. This wasn't something he set out to do. He was threatened by a gun. You know, he decided to protect himself, and you know, unfortunately, he ended up killing this guy. So, and then the same kind of over to page thirty-two. You know, he he flies off to Cuba to put the missiles out of commission, and 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 yeah, he's ultimately responsible for what happens, but he's certainly not a villain in this case. Things just got out of his control. No, and what what actually happened was he was going over there to eliminate the nuclear missiles in Cuba, the, you know, he had the best intentions in going over there, but because, you know, the Cubans were tracking radar and his flight path looked like that of a nuclear missile, the Cubans got leery and decided the Americans are launching on us. We need to launch on them. Right. And it just ended up in a giant, giant fuster clock. <laughs> uh, page 34 uh, we have a great pair of panels at the top of this page. It's very, very effective and, and emotional. Oh, yeah. The look of the the third generation Adam as he's looking at his father to see whether or not this is true. And the fact that on that second panel we get the Adam in shadow and you can't see the glowing of his eyes. You can see that his eyes are closed. And he's just uh, – you, you get the sense that he's completely sorrowful right. for all that's happened and him not being truthful with his son as well. So it's – the artwork just sells it on these pages. And even uh, that uh, fifth panel there where you just get the panel of the third generation Adam looking shocked mm-hmm. about the fact that the shadow thief killed his father and that it was justified and right. that he feels that it was justified. So it's awesome, awesome here. Yeah. It's him dealing with the emotion of of – why his father was killed, but also that his grandfather knew who the guilty party was and, and never tracked him down. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know he he felt guilt, 
right. for the responsibility of killing his father. So it it kind of made it a you know a a, a tit for a tat thing. You know if that could be you know said you know or, or if that's the right explanation that he's allowing his son to die because he in turn allowed this other person's father to die. Right. So. So what do you what do you think about the revelation of the shadow thief being the son of the guy he killed? Is that too convenient for you, or do you like it? I do kind of like it. I mean, it. I guess it could be considered as convenient, but in in superhero stories, you're you're allowed to accept these sort of convenient things that that the that the son of this person has some sort of relationship to you, and that's given him the motivation to go after this hero. It's not uncommon, you know, to see a, a lineage of heroes or a lineage of villains go up against this hero because they've been they've been wronged or they've felt that they've been wronged by this person. So it doesn't, it, it is, it is commonplace in hero comics, but it doesn't, it doesn't ruin it for me. Okay. I kind of agree. I mean, on one hand that it, it is convenient, but on the other, everything you said, but it's also our only story with this guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're, he'll appear in other books, but it's our only story with him as the lead character. So it gives Jurgens a chance to kind of bring, his origin full circle so mm-hmm. uh, pages 35 to 38 it's unfortunate that this is really our only story with him because this issue ends setting up a possibility for a great series with this guy as a new hero you oh know, yeah he's, he's trying to make his way and trying to make amends for his family's missteps but forging his own destiny as well it's just a great setup for a, a really good character oh I fully agree I think I think if Jurgens ever wanted to come back to do this and uh, you know to do a, whether it be a limited series or if he had the possibility to do an ongoing I think this would be there's so much stuff that was left seated here mm-hmm. that that could have been carried on into something else that would have made for a really interesting read. Yeah. Uh, you know I I fully agree this is something that I think should have been carried on. And the last really note I have is, is really just kind of some world building stuff on page 37. We see Adam walking through sky tubes. We see a police officer, just a normal patrolman with like a, uh, a flak jacket or armor on. It, just minor things, but they help show that this world is a lot different than the, the real world or the DC universe that we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And the dirty hippie comes back. Yeah, well, I'm, I guess all the dirty hippies you know, settled in in New Atlantis because, yeah. you know, they listened to too much Donovan. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the ending, we get uh, the reveal of of one of the members of Nightwing, and he's got this weird sort of, you know, Deathlock-type half, you know, cybernetic skull thing. And it's, it's interesting that the private more who was just a sort of throwaway character in the second flashback mm-hmm. is now the person who's behind this shadowy organization of Nightwing. Yeah. So it's, again, things are seated in here that you, and it took me a couple of read throughs to figure out that this was the same guy that happened upon who witnessed the assassination or the murder of uh, the private gray by the Adam in that second flashback. So, uh, this is just incredibly dense storytelling, and yeah. I just really enjoy it. 
Uh, well, he says, I was there, yes, I was there when Thompson killed Grey, and I've kept my mouth shut all these years. That's one of the reasons Nightwing brought me into this organization, or brought me into the organization. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, yeah, it's it's interesting seeding for stuff that's going to be going on. We're going to get a little bit more about this character and the organization of Nightwing, obviously later on when we cover the Nightwing book. And we're also going to get little snippets about them here in the, when we cover our next uh, issue or when we cover the next comic that we're going to be covering. Yeah. Overall, I just loved this start to finish. It was a great standalone story. But as we've talked about it, it opens a lot of doors for possible stories with all three Adams. And maybe most importantly for us going forward is it lays a solid foundation for the Tangent Universe and the world that it inhabits. You know, we really didn't talk too much, I guess, about the, the shadowy conspiracy in Nightwing, but it's there. There's an offhand mention of something called Red Tornado, and then there's all the, the feelings of the politics and political climate of the world. That stuff didn't have a lot to do with this issue in particular, but it's it's weaved in there and laying groundwork for other issues in the series. And that's one of the great things about these books is that they do stand alone, but if you read them all, you you get this broader world and and the little things tie together tie together that really flesh out the reading experience. Oh, definitely. This that's that's what I really took away from this is there are these little snippets and little seeds that they place in here that. You know, if you're just reading this book, could be overlooked as just window dressing. But if you read the entirety of the tangent line, it it broadens it and it uh, gives it a a greater a greater de- it gives a greater depth to the story. So mm-hmm. it's really really good stuff. But you know, it's what I'd expect from Dan Jurgens. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just really looking forward to uh, reading more, rereading more, and, and exploring more sides to this world. And if the other books are half this fun, it's going to be really, really enjoyable. I fully agree. Um, did you have anything about the back matter? Each of the, the first wave of books has two pages of back matter where they talk about kind of the development of the of that particular title and they offer some sketches and stuff. Did you have any? No, I really didn't have any notes on the back matter. I, you know, I like... You know, I like the different designs of the costumes. Uh, uh, they've got a they've got, a, got an image of one of the vehicles here on the on the last inside page. Uh, it's very Blade Runner esque, and obviously Brand uh, B R A N D E. The character is the guy who's designing these vehicles and stuff. So that's it's it's kind of neat. Did you have any notes on it? I did not really. I, okay. I enjoy this kind of stuff, but I, this particular one, I didn't really have any. Uh... Yeah, I kind of skimmed through it myself. You know, so far, I think we've got a really good beginning to what I think is going to be a really good series of podcasts uh, talking about a really good series of uh, of comics. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this. So uh, hopefully uh, we will be releasing these like every two weeks. I don't know what the set date is right now, but keep uh, listening to it. Uh, the links are going to be in iTunes. We're going to be posting on Facebook about this, and we're going to be trying to get as many people as we can checking this out because this is really a good series of comics. But until next time, I hope you folks will come back and uh, listen to us jabber on about another issue of the Tangent Comics universe. So we will catch you next time out. See ya.
You've just finished listening to Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Hosted by me, Michael Bradley. And me, Sean Ingle. The show can be downloaded from a variety of places, most notably Michael's website, greatcrypton.com, where you can find show notes, cover images, and a section for leaving comments about the episodes. It can also be found on iTunes by searching for Parallel Lines. And if you happen to use iTunes, please take some time out to leave a review. Maybe even a five-star one. All reviews help more people to find out about the show. The show is also on Facebook, where you can like us and get updates when new shows are posted. Plus, images, plot elements, and general discussion about these books can be found there as well. Want to send feedback about the episode? Well, then you can email us at tangent at greatcrypton.com. All feedback is warmly welcomed, and we will definitely read your emails on the show. When Michael and I aren't doing shows about alternate DC Comics history, we're busy doing tons of other geeky stuff on the internet. For instance, Michael does a podcast about Superman and Batman team-ups, cleverly titled Superman and Batman. Plus, he hosts a blog about the Man of Steel's creators, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, called Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, both of which you can find over at GreekCrypton.com. And Sean hosts a Green Lantern podcast focusing on Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, called Just One of the Guys. He's also a guest host on Walking Dead Wednesdays, a Walking Dead podcast, and Who True Freaks, a Doctor Who podcast. And all these shows can be found over at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Speaking of Two True Freaks, if you ever feel like making a purchase from Amazon.com, please use the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com. After clicking the link, any purchase you make at Amazon will shoot a percentage of money back to the Two True Freaks website. It won't cost you anything extra, but it really helps out a great bunch of podcasters. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next time for another episode of Parallel Lines, the DC Comics Tangent Universe podcast. Because in the Tangent Universe... You only know the names. <laughs>